whether I chose you, you were professor of English at the American University in, in Beirut, Lebanon, and there you said through war and revolution and, and until the very last possible moment and at last in the great summer had to leave. And so he <coughs> fortunate for the University of Maryland where uh, the exact title is Distinguished Professor of the Baha'i Chair for World Peace. And of course the Baha'i uh, religion is, is dedicated to the belief that all religions are one and the conflicts between religions that cause such sorrow and destruction in the world. And Suhi is, is passionately engaged in this very important work, without which there will be no poetry, no love, no anything. We will destroy ourselves. But please God, it won't happen. But I'm taking up the precious time in which we look forward to this lecture, which is on the field poetry. And it will not be some uh, fancy theory about poetry, but from the very heart, in, in the place where poetry comes in all languages, whether Arabic, the language in which you yourself write poetry, or English, or any other language, it is just what poetry itself is. And uh, I think we should all delight in what we have to tell us. So, without more ado, I will leave you to Professor Bushman. Uh, Gibran's image of love and uh, 
of unity. unity. However, uh, as we all hear tonight, trying to defend poetry, it is only appropriate that we should honor someone who has been one of the great defenders of poetry, at least in the Arab world. I, uh, tonight, this book on Gibran, the first annotated edition of the Prophet, came out. It's the first time that it is on view. It will be, I think, uh, in the bookshops in about three weeks' time. I took this opportunity to, by some kind of uh, diabolical Middle Eastern scheme, to get uh, uh, this uh, gentleman whom I would like very much to honor tonight here, and finally we succeeded in doing it without him knowing what was going on. He leaves the country tomorrow, and I'm very fortunate to have him here tonight. And because he leaves the country tomorrow, I thought Cathy uh, would give me the permission to uh, honor him by giving him the book dedicated to himself. Mm -hmm. This special annotated edition, the first on the run, is, grateful, is in grateful recollection of his many kindnesses. This special annotated edition is dedicated in grateful recollection of his many kindnesses to George Zahar, philanthropist, ardent champion of literary, artistic, and educational courses. And I have a great honor to really offer him the book. Thank you very much. Thank you for your... Thank you for honor. Thank you. I'm sorry. Did I? Well, I come from a part of the world where machinery is not part of my culture, but uh, I'm delighted to be here. And I think that it is uh, appropriate that uh, in 1995 an Arab should be standing here at the Terminus Academy to defend English poetry. <laughs> and I think that it is really, it is to the credit of English poetry that an Arab should do that. I feel greatly honored to have this privilege because I have always believed that the soul of the nation resides in its poetry and its literature. And I feel that by coming to by sitting at the feet of the great masters of English poetry, I have come to love what I call the English psyche. This has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with humanity. In May, of course, before I go any further, I must uh, tell you that the reason why I did not introduce the most important protagonist tonight is because he's anyway going to steal the show. <laughs> so, Tom Durham, he claims to be an actor and not a poet, and I insist that he's both an actor and a poet. Uh, he will be providing the excitement, the flair, and the spirit. <laughs> I am merely here scaffolding for what art we shall see tonight. <clears throat> in May 1987, I was privileged to meet Samuel Beckett. 
perhaps the greatest dramatist of the 20th century. I believe I was the last person to interview him before his passing. His words, at any rate, conveyed the sonorous finality of a man summing up his life's work. During our conversation about his plays, he said, The work is finished. I am both happy and sad. It is a strange feeling. Others discover in my writing a secret of which I am unaware. It is a secret which is hidden from me. Many people come to see me, and I am the only one who does not know why. The word is immortal. The word continues. What has helped me to continue to write is my faith in the word. And if the word comes to an end, everything comes to an end. The word is an anchor. As he spoke these words, his forefinger touched the page of the book in front of him, brushing across a line as though he were writing invisible words on the printed page. He communicated to me a joy, a zest, as he touched the words before him, fingering them. And I saw as never before what is meant by the living word. This was the Lord's of St. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of the Arabic Quran, if all the sea were ink for my sustainer's words, the sea would indeed be exhausted ere my sustainer's words are exhausted. And thus it would be if we were to add sea upon sea. I said to Wicked, <clears throat> as an Arab scholar and poet, I see in your work not the pessimism discerned by most European critics, but a message that says we must not wait for God, we must go, go to him. Isn't your work saying forget the form of words, concentrate instead on the essence of words, isn't this the Logos? They say you are a disbeliever in the same way that William Blake was in stating that the imagination is the Christian Logos. Indeed, the Arabic Quran makes the self-same point. Now behold, this divine text has indeed been bestowed from on high by the sustainer of all the worlds. Trustworthy divine inspiration has alighted with it from on high, upon thy heart, O Muhammad, so that thou mayst be among those who preach in the clear Arabic tongue. Beckett smiled, and neither agreeing nor disagreeing said, This is a very interesting and new way of looking at my work. And as if in affirmation of my words, he added as I was leaving, The word is energy. It keeps me going. When it stops, everything stops. Today's world is all images, no words. At that moment, Samuel Beckett and William Blake, poets separated by two centuries, were as one, united 
by profound belief in the religious and mystical power of language. Shakespeare, Sidney, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Shelley, Yeats, and Eliot. These poets too believed above all in the power of the word, a power that sparks man's imagination and awakens the soul itself. God and soul are words not fashionable in a world that is dissociating itself from its spiritual roots, hiding its emptiness behind walls of materialism. Yet we will never escape from what is within us, however deeply buried the soul of man remains. If we are ever to advance towards a global society, it is our soul that must be revitalized, and it is to the poet that I look for hope. Throughout history, the poet, like the priest, has never ceased in his quest to arouse the spirit of truth, the God in all men. Blake, in his great poem, Jerusalem, wrote, I rest not from my great task to open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought, into eternity ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. Of all art forms, poetry, the distillation of the word, is the one most able to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought. Poetry is based upon an essential element of mankind's existence, language the mother that cements human society together and raises us above the level of animals. Fossil poetry, that is the term used by Ralph Waldo Emerson to describe the simple, the simple greeting, hello, that bridges the gap between two human beings. The 19th century religious poet Gerard Manley Hopkins called poetry speech purged of dross like gold in the furnace. This refined speech, this gold, has the power to communicate at the very deepest levels of the human psyche. It delves below the surface realities of daily life to illuminate an inner reality where thought, emotion and belief come to life in the imagination. Blake's Christian Laws. Charles Baudelaire draws a particularly vivid picture of how the poet calls upon the mystical powers of language. In language, in the word, there is something holy that forbids us to treat it as a game of chance. To handle a language skillfully is to practice a kind of evocative sorcery. It is then that color speaks like a deep throbbing voice. The monuments arise and stand out against the depths of space. That animals and plants, representing ugliness and evil, grimace in unmistakable shapes. That a perfume provokes its correspondent thought and memory. That passion murmurs or roars its ever-changing articulation. At the heightened pitch of the imagination, the senses of man touch, taste, hearing, sight and smell, are all stimulated by the poet's words. 
great poetry has the ability to engage us simultaneously on the most intimate personal level and on the most broadly objective level which tells us that our experience is common to all humanity. It has the power to inspire us, console us, interpret our very existence for us. Hence Blake's cry in the voice of the ancient bard. Hear the voice of the bard who present, past, and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees, calling the lapsed soul and weeping in the evening dew. Blake's verse is a most potent articulation of the deeply spiritual quest of the poet. His aim was to awaken the lapsed soul of mankind, and thus, and thus to found a new world order based on truth and brotherhood. Scorned as a madman during his lifetime, he has only recently gained recognition for the prophetic wisdom of his poetry. An inspired poetry, like religion, carries the seed of truth. It communicates by inducing awareness and affirmation, a profound delight engendered by the sheer rightness of the poet's words, a joy that makes the soul resonate like a musical note with a sense of shirt. <clears throat> Almost involuntarily, from deep within us, comes the response, this I have always known, and for an instant we're blessed with real apprehension of truth, not merely a notion, assertion of it. Poetry is nothing, nothing less than the meeting of the human soul with truth. Truth appears in many guises, in, under many different names, such as God, Muhammad, Baha'u'llah, Buddha, Shiva. The myriad religions of the world have all jealously claimed truth as their particular guide. It has been militarized, politicized, used to excuse men's worst atrocities. In the words of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, He who begins by loving Christianity better than truth will proceed by loving his own sect or church better than Christianity and end in loving himself better than all. As Coleridge implies, Truth cannot be confined, be it by temporal, political, geographical, racial, or sectarian boundary. I'm reminded of these marvelous words of Abu Tamam, one of the great poets of Arabia, and maybe just to get the flavor of the Arabic. In نسري ونقدو في إخاء تالدي أو نفترق نسبا يؤلف بيننا أدب أقمناه مقام الوالد أو يختلف ما هو الوصال فما هنا عذب تحضر من غمان واحد If brotherly ties are but slender our morning and evening comings and goings enjoy age-old fraternity. Or if no links of family unite us, 
literature or poetry is the father we adopt. Truth is the great unifier of humanity, the guiding principle of a global society. Thus, my prosaic efforts to define the indefinable. The poet differs from the scientist, the philosopher, and the psychologist. Instead of attempting to explain our existence, the poet strives to take us directly to the essential truth of life, giving us not cold reasoning, but the warm glow of shared experience. If he succeeds, we receive his words not with our intellect, but at a level that synthesizes thought and emotion in the soul itself. Yet, how can mere words elicit such a powerful response? What makes the pagan poem Beowulf, or the Thousand and One Nights, or the Wasteland of T.S. Eliot, or for that matter the Bible, or any other religious text, as relevant today as when they were first composed? Perhaps the answer awaits within Courage's poem, Kublai Khan. Not only does this work blend all the qualities of rhyme, rhythm, metaphor, and symbol in perfect harmony, but it also suggests very subtly and very beautifully the spiritual and moral quest that lies at the heart of all poetry. Kublai Khan was composed under remarkable circumstances. In the summer of 1797, Coleridge moved to a lonely farmhouse in the southwest of England. According to Coleridge's own account, while reading Purchase's pilgrimage, he fell asleep just after coming on the words, Here the Khan Kublai commanded a palace to be built, and a stately garden whereunto, thereunto, and thus ten miles of fertile ground were enclosed with a wall. While sleeping, Coleridge dreamed a complete poem of some two to three hundred lines in length. By his own testimony, all the images rose up before me as things with a parallel production of the correspondent expressions without any sensation or consciousness of effort. Upon working, he wrought out as much as he could remember, but was only a quarter of the way through when he was interrupted by a caller. An hour later, when he returned to the poem, all his memories had faded, like the images on the surface of a stream into which a stone has been cast. This is what remained. In Zanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedar cover. A holy place, as savage and enchanted, as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover.
And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fasting pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift, half-intermitted burst huge fragments bolted, like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks, at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with amazing motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man, and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves. Where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves? It was a miracle of rare device, that sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song? To such a deep delight would win me, that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air. That sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. How does Coleridge create the magical effects of this poem? Firstly, by rhythm. The French poet Mallarmé suggested that it is the rhythm of a poem that attunes us to its deeper intuitive substance. Poetry is the expression, by human language, recalled to its essential rhythm of the mysterious meaning of existence. Our life is, after all, suffused with rhythm. The subconscious mind, that part of the mind that poetry addresses most directly, develops in the womb to the beat of the mother's heart. Our own heartbeat determines the parameters of our existence an existence that is mirrored in the eternal cycle of the changing seasons, the essential rhythm of nature. In his essay, The Music of Poetry, T.S. Eliot takes Mallarmé's notion a stage further, arguing that the inner, innate musicality of rhythm can impart the inspirational spark of independent of words. We are all familiar with a tremendous emotional power inherent in music, which the poet harnesses to human language in such a way that his meaning reverberates in the very sound of the words and their rhythm. Thus, in Kublai Khan, Coric chooses vowel sounds 
to mirror the enchanting beauty of his vision. In the opening lines, vowels invert, repeat and interwine, just as in a melody. In Zanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where half the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Alliteration abounds Kublai Khan. Dome, decree, river, ran, sunless, sea. Accentuating the rhythm and reinforcing the stateliness of the issuing of a decree. Similarly, word clusters with a preponderant letter S conjure up within us the hissing swell of the sea. In a letter verse, Five miles meandering with a maze motion captures with dreamlike intensity the, the twisting river's course. Five miles meandering with a maze motion. Cordy's poem clearly fulfills the criteria laid down by the great German poet and dramatist Friedrich von Schiller. In every poem, we distinguish the unity of thought from the unity of feeling the musical attitude from the logical attitude. In short, we require that each poetical composition, besides what is required and expressed in its content, should also by its form, the imitation and expression of feelings, exercise a musical effect on us. No single quality in a poem, however, can work in isolation from its other constituent parts. Of equal importance to rhythm and musicality is symbolism whose operation on the human mind has been elucidated by 20th century psychology. According to Carl Jung, symbols are archaic remnants, uh, primordial images, deposits of thousands of years of experience of the struggle for existence and for adaptation. And their effect is to activate the collective unconscious in man. In Kublai Khan, the river, the fountain, the caves, woods, walls, stars and walls all involve the audience by appealing to the subconscious mind, the seat of our desires and fear, the primary imagination, as Coleridge termed it in his biographia de In his essay, Making Knowing and Judging, W. H. Auden noted that some symbols seem to be sacred to all imaginations at all times. The deep, romantic chasm, the rocks, the sea, the river, are all such sacred symbols, unfailingly stirring a sense of awe in our souls. Just by way of example, you have only to mention the sea, and immediately the associations are with Jesus walking on the water, and the fish. You speak of the caves, and it is immediately the associations are with Muhammad and the few months he spent in communion with God, preparing himself before his revelation. You speak of the mountain, and you speak of Moses, and the burning bush, and the Ten Commandments. Over the centuries, man has increasingly rejected his inner sight and spiritual world in favor 
of an external reality fashioned by science, intellect, and the primary understanding of the senses. Consequently, he has cut himself off from these deeper, intuitive sources of vitality. Metaphor and symbol, whether in dreams, religion, or poetry, activate the intuitive, imaginative heart of man by calling forth such archetypal memories the poet puts his audience in profound subconscious contact with the past and future struggles of mankind, thereby enlightening the present. In Sartus and Zartus, the 19th century critic Thomas Carlyle offered an explanation as to how poetic symbols take root in the imagination. In a symbol, there is concealment and yet revelation. In the symbol proper, there is ever, more or less distinctly and directly, some embodiment and revelation of the infinite. The infinite is made to blend itself with the finite, to stand visible and, as it were, attainable there. By symbols, accordingly, is man guided and commanded. The universe is but one vast symbol of God. Same words spoken by Rumi. God is love, the universe is his book. The poet Gerard Manny Hopkins likewise approached everything in the universe as a symbol of God. To him, the absolute rightness of every object, its harmonious position in God's ordered world, gave a stone as much spiritual beauty as a kingfisher. <coughs> as kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. Selves, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying what I do is me. For that I came. Hopkins reached the same conclusion as Carlyle, triumphantly declaring that man is the symbol of Christ. I say more. The just man justices, keeps grace, that makes all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. The aims of poetry and religion can now be understood as being essentially the same. The two are united by the word. Poetry uses religious imagery and religion uses poetic techniques. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. These gripping lines convey the religious power through a poetic manipulation of language. The repetition of words lends a weighty rhythm while the sentence crescendos to its climax. However, the real genius of the poem lies in the opposition which the author sets up between the form of the line and its content. The sentence is split into three increasingly smaller parts, yet as the sentence unites, and as the units shrink in size, so they expand in meaning and mystery, until God and the Word coalesce with compelling finality 
the language is purged of its gloss, its unnecessary conjunctions and adjectives, revealing the majestic and the majesty of pure poetry and pure meaning. We can set this in this way. We can see at a glance both a cause and a symptom of our irreligious age if we compare these verses from the King James's version of the Bible with their equivalent in one of the new translations, such as the so-called Good News Bible. I must apologize if I offend any taste here, but I really cannot bring myself to read the so-called Good News Bible. Before the world was created, the Word already existed. He was with God, and He was the same as God. This is what our modern age does to the spirit of poetry. In an effort to explain the unexplicable, the Word is rendered lifeless, dead. Where is the power now? This is the language of the press report, the supermarket, the cartoon. And then people wonder why people aren't religious. If we debase language, we debase meaning. For word is the meaning. Kill the poetry and we kill the spirit. They are one and the same in search of the truth. Cordes Kublai Khan exemplifies the spiritual quest of to unite language and God in the all-powerful word. Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such a deep delight would win me that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome. In the impassioned joy of inspiration, Courage believes that poetic creativity is without limits, endless in its possibilities. The word has the divine authority to make transitory experience permanent, to create a dome in the air out of the music of poetry. Is this empty idealism? Should we dismiss it as utopia? The pragmatists of today frequently accuse poets of being dreamers, which indeed they are. Not fanciful dreamers or incurable romantics, however, but dreamers of what T.S. Eliot called the high dream of man. Unity, truth, brotherhood, freedom. In the words of Arthur O'Shaughnessy, We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. Yet we are the movers and shakers of the world forever, it seems. But what is it that drives a poet to create? Why is inspired verse the poetry to which mankind returns again and again for solace, joy and understanding? What is inspiration? Again, the poet is best able to convey the experience. In this case, the Russian poet Valdislav I think, describes the advent of inspiration. What a vague, what a passionate murmur, lacking any intelligent plan. But a sound may be truer than reason, and a word may be stronger than man. 
and then melody, melody, melody blends my accents and joins in their quest. And a delicate, 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 pointed blade seems to enter my breast. Most poets admit to moments in their lives when they are unaccountably able to express themselves better and more easily in verse than ever before. Pushkin never wrote a single line unless he was inspired. Milton believed himself aided by creative power in his monumental epic poem, Paradise Lost. I cannot go beyond the command of the Lord, asserted William Blake, to speak good or bad. According to Shelley, poetry is not like reasoning, a power to be exerted according to the determination of the will. A man cannot say, I will compose poetry. Even as far back as the classical age, Plato records Socrates as saying, the epic poets, all the good ones, have their excellence not from art, but are inspired, possessed, and thus they utter all these admirable poems. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare allies the poet's creative imagination with two other states of possession. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold. That is the madman. The lover, all as frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. The poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth, the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing, a local habitation and a name. It's clear that the inspirational spark is common to all great works of poetry, whether it's Shakespeare's fine frenzy, Socrates' possession, or Blake's spirits. The resultant verse resounds with a power and insight that is divinely inspired. Goethe, as decoded by Johann Eckermann, had the following to say on the subject. In religious and moral matters, a divine influence is indeed still allowed. But in matters of science and art, it is believed that they are merely earthy and nothing but the product of human powers. Let anybody only try with human will and human power to produce something that may be compared with the creations that bear the names of Mozart, Raphael, or Shakespeare. They rose above ordinary human nature and were divinely endowed. William Wordsworth, England's finest lyric poet, found his inspiration, his divine gift in nature's beauty. His minute observations of the English countryside, recollected in reverential detail, were pictures through which he confronted the immortal. His perceptions blossomed in response to physical beauty, allowing a deeper spiritual understanding to enter his soul. Gazing on Tintin Abbey, he wrote, For I have learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing, oftentimes, the still sad music of humanity, nor harsh, nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. 
and I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Nature's splendor caused him to swell with joy. Sensations sweet, felt in the blood, and felt along the heart, and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. The feeling of harmony and transcendent unity that words was experienced when nature wrought its magic upon him is, like all unifying forces, a profoundly moral force. It is a force that elevates mankind from the treadmill of his daily considerations to contemplate something far more deeply diffused, the miracle of our existence, the deeply ordered pattern of life itself, a glimpse of the divine. The poet's role is to capture, distill, recreate this divine vision in words possessing the power of the Pentecostal wind, the breath of God in man. Looking on truth, the poet is compelled to convey it to the world in verse, to build a dome in the air, to inspire mankind as he himself was inspired. In the prelude, Wordsworth describes inspired literature as a vivifying virtue, whence, depressed by false opinion and contentious thought, or aught of heavier or more deadly weight, in trivial occupations and the round of ordinary intercourse, our minds are nourished and invisibly repaired. A virtue by which pleasure is enhanced, that penetrates, enables us to mount when high, more high, and lifts us up when fallen. The light of truth is an irresistible, dynamic power, appealing to our deepest moral roots, vivifying as it lifts us in words of the words, or as Goethe wrote in many colored threads. The few glances I have cast over Shakespeare's world incite me, more than anything beside, to quicken my footsteps forward into the actual world, to mingle in the flood of destinies that is suspended over it and at length, if I shall prosper, to draw a few cups from the great ocean of true nature and to distribute them from off the stage among the thirsting people of my native land. Contrary to popular belief, poetry is not introspective, but rather like an avenue escorting us into the external world and leading us back to our life with an encircling sense of renewed purpose. Like Goethe, we see the gap between our ideals, our sense of what should be, and our realization of reality, what actually is. Poetry forces us not only to see, but also, more importantly, to feel, to feel the chasm that separates truth from reality. Seeing that yawning gulf with prophetic eyes, William Blake denounced the enemies of truth and justice in the world 
condemning their soulless pursuit of the material with all the majesty of an Old Testament prophet. Blake believed that modern life had killed man's imagination, man's Christian laws, the soul itself. Yet he remained convinced that one day the poets of the world would revive our dormant spirit, inspire us with the breath of the word. We would be reborn into a new Jerusalem, a city symbolic of inner and outer enlightenment. My streets are my ideas of imagination. Awake, Albion, awake, and let us awake together. My houses are thoughts, my inhabitants affections, the children of my thoughts walking within my blood vessels, shut from my nervous form, which sleeps upon the verge of Beulah in dreams of darkness, while my vegetating blood in veiny pipes rolls dreadful through the furnaces of loss and the mills of Satan. For Robert Browning, however, the gap between the poet's ideal vision of the world and the shabby reality surrounding him represented a source of consolation. What I aspired to be, and was not, comforts me. For mere earthly happiness to Browning was a sign of spiritual and moral stagnation, a denial of Eliot's high dream. One of the earliest expressions of this transfiguring joy in English literature is found in Troilus and Christie. In the final verses of Geoffrey Chaucer's mighty poem, Troilus is deserted by his beloved Christian and killed in battle. It is seen of potential tragedies transformed when he ascends to heaven. And dawn from Venice, fast he gan a visa, this little spot of earth that with the sea embraced is, and fully gan despiser this wretched world, and held out vanity to respect the pliant felicity that is in heaven above. And at the last, there he was slain, his lurking doom he cast. And in himself he lurked at the woe of him that wept for his death so fast. Six centuries later, the poems of W.B. Yeats, last, the poems of W.B. Yeats's last years, though imbued with a sense of his own and civilization's imminent end revealed just such a transcendent spiritual joy. In Lapis Lazuli, he portrayed a world that has rejected the values of art, music, and poetry. Like the puny ant-like figures seen by Troilus from heaven, the people of Yeats's civilization, our civilization, have a mean-minded, narrow sense of self-preservation which prevents them from perceiving the eternal life of the soul. In this poem, it's left to the great tragic figure of Shakespearean literature to rise above their intense personal suffering in a transfiguring gaiety. I have heard that hysterical women say they are sick of the palette and fiddle bow of poets that are always gay. For everybody knows, or else should know, that if nothing drastic is done, airplane and zeppelin will come out, pitch like King Billy, bomb balls in, until the town lie beaten flat. All perform their tragic play. There, Strauss Hammond, there is near, 
that Sophia, that Cordelia, yet they, should the last scene be there, the great stage curtain about to drop, if worthy their prominent part in the play, do not break up their lines to weep. They know that Hamlet and Lear are gay, gaiety transfiguring all that dread. Though civilizations may tumble, the poet is happy, for he has seen the eternal. Yeats reiterates this theme in The King's Threshold, a play that vehemently defends the role of the poet. And I would have you know that when all falls in ruin, poetry calls out in joy, being the scattering hand, the bursting pod, the victim's joy among the holy flame, God's laughter at the shattering of the world. Art and religion both occupy peripheral roles in our society. And of all the arts, poetry is the most beleaguered, threatened, especially by the mass media, which corrupts values with an endless stream of tawdry imitation. Language, as Beckett reminds us, is debased by television's insistence on images which, by their very nature, destroy the imaginative power of figurative language. These images essentially think for the audience like God... It, sorry, I, I should have omitted this. These images essentially think for the audience, inhibiting the use of the imagination. Long before the advent of television, Joshua Reynolds, one of England's first finest portrait painters, attempted to define the relative power of images and poetry. The painter's art is more confined and has nothing that corresponds with, or perhaps is equivalent to poetry's power and advantage of leading the mind on till attention is totally engaged. Two centuries later, the novelist D.H. Lawrence talked similarly of pure attention. Every real discovery made Every serious and significant decision ever reached was reached and made by divination. The soul stirs and makes an act of pure attention, and that is a discovery. The neglect of the arts in our present society is astounding when we recall that in the formative centuries of Western civilization, education was based upon a recognition of the role of the arts in shaping morality. Both Plato and Aristotle acknowledges, as illustrated by the following expert. We would not have our guardians grow up amid images of immoral deformity, as in some noxious pasture, and their brows and feed upon many a baneful herb and flower day by day, little by little, until they silently gather a festering mass of corruption in their own souls. Let our artists, rather, be those who are gifted to discern the true nature of the beautiful and graceful. Then will our youth dwell in a land of health amid fair sights and sounds, and receive the good in everything. And beauty, the effluence of fair works, shall flow into the eye and ear like a health-giving breeze from a purer region, and insensibly draw the soul from earliest years into likeness and sympathy with the beauty of reason. Exposure to beauty ultimately creates a desire to emulate the inherent goodness in it. And because of the intimate link between form and content in poetry, verse, which attempts to elevate the soul, must, 
by its very nature be beautiful and moral. Schiller too stressed the certainty of art in education. One of the most important tasks of culture is to submit man to the influence of form, even in his merely physical life, to make his life aesthetic by introducing the rule of beauty wherever possible. Because only from the aesthetic and not from the physical state can morality develop. Poetry educates not by explaining or legislating, but by communicating an experience, staring within the imagination hopes, joys and fears that are common to all mankind. In his essay, Art as Experience, John Dewey asserted that civilization is uncivil because human beings are divided into non-communicating sects, races, nations, classes and cliques. Poetry is a civilizing force, precisely because it appeals to a higher plane where these barriers do not exist. The poet Shelley goes further still in his exhilarating prose work, A Defense of Poetry. The great instrument of moral good is the imagination. Poetry enlarges the circumference of the imagination by replenishing it with thoughts of ever new delight, which have the power of attracting and assimilating to their own nature all other thoughts. Poetry strengthens this faculty, which is the organ of the moral nature of man, in the same manner as exercise strengthens a limb. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. And Yeats further expounds upon the moral role of poetry. The poet and the lawgiver hold their station by the right of the same faculty, the one uttering in words and the other in the forms of society his vision of the divine order, the intellectual beauty. But today the poet is ignored by most, scorned by some, respected by few. Poetry, as Yeats wrote so eloquently in The King's Threshold, is... One of the fragile, mighty things of God that die at an insult. And amidst the ages of criticism on the flawed nature of criticism itself stands out the poetic commentary of Professor Santiana. Never will they dig deep or build for time who of unreason weave a maze of rhyme. Worship a weakness, nurse a whim, and bind wreaths about temples, tenantless of mind. Forsake the path the seeing muses trod, and shatter nature to discover God. Poetry is easily elbowed aside by those who, under the guise of modernity, reduce everything to political, racial, and religious sectarianism. The current fact has been best described by Norman Potthorst in 1986 in the Washington Post. A professor of English at a major university argued against teaching the poetry of John Milton on grounds of irrelevance. <laughs> Yet far from being discredited in the eyes of his colleagues, he was promptly elected to the presidency of the main academic literary association. This is true. What now certified a book as relevant was not its literary value, but its usefulness to a particular political purpose, black nationalism or feminism or the revolution against Western civilization in general. As for literary merit, a good writing, declared a radical feminist, echoing a remark Lenin had made about music, 
was counter-revolutionary. One of the reasons for the decline of poetry is that since the death of T.S. Eliot in 1965, no poet of universally recognized stature has emerged. This is not to say that the voices of Catherine Rain, who graces with her presence, are gathering today, and Francis Warner, my dear friend, are in any way less powerful or genuine than that of Eliot. But they are contemporary poets, and you know, a poet is never, a, a prophet or a poet, never recognized by his own people. They are contemporary poets, and by virtue of their contemporaneity, their true value will be difficult to assess by either their peers or their present critics. But the voice hits here, and this is what counts. Mankind has indeed lost its soul, its imagination and its gods. The power of Eliot's verse emanates primarily from his unflinching realization of this unplacable fact. The structure of the wasteland is as much a symbol of creativity's decay as the content. Built as it is from the broken sh shards of Western civilization's finest poetry and music, with deliberate echoes of Baudelaire, Shakespeare and the Bible, the wasteland mirrors the internal rot of a soulless culture which can only imitate. To the poet, the inhabitants of Dante's limbo now live in London. I'm sorry. <laughs> A crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Arguably, the most important poem of the 20th century, The Wasteland, represents a tribute to a lost age, the poetic equivalent of the shattered, patched, and meaningless remnants of once great civilizations that now lie half-exposed in the dust in Bosnia. One need only draw a comparison with the eloquent odes of Hotz to see the degeneration of the poetic influence within our society, a society which no longer glorifies the eternal and beautiful, but rather the transient fads of an irreligious, irreligious age, refusing to accept its demise. I have finished a monument, more lasting than bronze and loftier than the pyramid's royal pile, one that no wasting rain, no furious north wind can destroy, or the countless chain of years and the ages flight. I shall not altogether die, but a mighty part of me shall escape the death goddess. On and on shall I grow, ever fresh with the glory of after time. Eliot was perhaps the last poet to know the real power of the world. Today there is no one of whom we can say, as Chekhov said of Tolstoy at the beginning of this century, with exceptions of the names I've mentioned. His work justifies all the hope and faith we put in literature. In the Templeton Address in 1983, another Russian, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, unhesitatingly attributed our artistic barrenness to a universal loss of religious faith. Western societies are losing more and more of their religious essence as they yield up their younger generation to atheism. Atheist teachers are bringing up a younger generation in a spirit of hate for their own society. The embittered art of the 20th century is perishing from this ugly hate, for art is fruitless without love. In the East, art has collapsed because it has been forcibly knocked down and trampled, 
But in the West, the fall has been voluntary, a decline into a contrived and pretentious quest where the artist, instead of attempting to make known the divine plan, tries to put himself in the place of God. The same result is produced both in East and West through a worldwide process by the same cause, that men have forgotten God. Christianity is fragmented, weakened from within, by internal schism and doubt, while in many countries the Muslim religion is brandished as a political weapon, instilling fear and loathing. Yet the Heraclitian nature of history means that as Blake and Yeats prophesied, out of the old is born the new, out of decay arises phoenix-like, a fresh wave of belief and creativity. Just as man seemed doomed to total self-destruction, a new regenerative spirit swept through Eastern Europe, firing an innervated world with a sense of forgotten unity. The Berlin Wall collapsed, Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia were reborn, led by none other than their artists, musicians, and most of all their poets. For in these repressive societies, the poets kept the world alive, jealously guarding the spirit of freedom and truth until it could be released from its chains. This, as Tolstoy would have reminded us, was the true seat of the revolution. All the great revolutions in men's lives are made in thought. When a change takes place in man's thought, action follows the direction of thought as a ship follows the direction given by its rudder. Vakav Havel, playwright and poet, became leader of Czechoslovakia. Andrea Chakarov, Russian scientist and writer, and Yegni Vyvetyshinko, Russian poet, have become influential figures within the Russian government. This surpasses even Shelley's creed, for these men are acknowledged legislators of the world. There can be no greater symbol of the moral dynamic of poetry than this, and it shames the many countries that still view the poet as an isolated dreamer. Although he himself was to become a member of the Irish Senate, W. E. Yeats expressed considerable misgiving about the direct political involvement of the poet in the future of the nation. He believed that an artist should be a guardian, not of the external realities of church and state, but of the internal realities of conscience and imagination. I believe that literature is the principal voice of the conscience, he wrote in a letter to the editor of the Freeman's Journal, November 14, 1901, and that it is the duty, it is its duty, age after age, to affirm its morality against the special moralities of clergymen and churches and of kings and parliaments and peoples. T.R. Hens maintained a similar stance when he wrote of, of the teachers of literature, the guardians of this principal voice of the conscience within the educational system. We, who presume to teach literature, however faultingly and feebly, are, I believe, under bond to transmit such comment from our own experience as may serve to relate it, however gropingly, to the fundamental values. So far as we have known love, war, death, in all their permutations. It is for us to make known our experiences in terms of literature to our pupils. If we fail to do this, whether because of some personal inhibition or lack of experience, 
or the fear of ridicule from those we teach because we are not with it. With, that is to say, the current conceptions of a world by turns empty or absurd or irresponsible. Then we are acting out a new treason of the class. Perhaps we are acting it even by keeping silence. While such a stance retains its validity, T.S. Eliot perhaps comes closer to our current situation in his essay, The Unity of European Culture, which speaks of the inseparable link between politics and culture for good or ill. It may make a nation intolerant of every culture by its own, so that it feels impelled to stamp out or to remould every culture surrounding it. The other direction in which the confusion of culture and politics may lead is towards the ideal of a world state in which there will, in the end, be only one uniform world culture. We have seen all too clearly what happens when nations take the first direction, overrunning neighboring nations and crushing their indigenous cultures. If nothing else, such grim events serve to remind us that we must strive unceasingly towards the other goal of a world state, led by those who can show us the unifying light of truth and awaken our imagination, which, as Wordsworth tells us in the prelude, this love more intellectual cannot be without imagination, which, in truth, is but another name for absolute strength and clearest insight, amplitude of mind, and reason in her most exalted mood. This faculty has been the moving soul of our long labor. We have traced the stream from darkness and the very place of birth in its blind cavern, whence is faintly heard the sound of waters, followed it to light and open day, accompanied its course among the ways of nature, afterwards lost sight of it, bewildered and engulfed, then given it greeting as it rose once more with strength, reflecting in its solemn breast the works of man and face of human life. And lastly, from its progress, have we drawn the feeling of life endless, the great thought by which we live, eternity and God. Race, religion, politics, language, these are merely the refracted colors of the one white light that is mankind's unity and truth. This is the absolute morality, the spirituality which we must cherish in nature if we are to save this world. In Schiller's words, only from the aesthetic and not from the physical state can morality develop. And to end, I thought perhaps I would be, I beg your indulgence, and end with a poem of mine written in Arabic. The title of this lecture, of course, is In Defense of Poetry, In Defense of the Word, really. This poem, originally written in Arabic, is about the word. It's a search. And in Arabic it goes as follows, and then Tom will read the English part of it. So it goes as follows, really. جُؤْتُكِ سَائِلًا شَاطِئًا لِمَنْ لَا حِنْتَاهَ وَأَبْلَاهُ الرَّحِيلُ 
باحثا في طيات الرياح عن مكلى للامان يقيه بالحنان افات الزمان سندباد انا افكاري بحار ومحيطات مشاعري تسري بي اليك مع رياح الهوى عبر طيات القفار طفت مع الزبد طفت مع الزبد فوق كل موج ضاربا شواطئ الصخور صخور الفراق عليها سفني كلها تحطمت اشرعتها تمزقت كانها الاكفان لامال انعراض اين انت اين انت في خضم العواصف الهوجاء رحماك اقبلي هدوءا واحملي ملاحك التائه قوديه الى شاطئ يغسل الهموم يطهر الالام عندك راكعا ساجدا في رحبك الحرام I seek a shore as a weather-beaten sailor lost amid the seas of the world searching in the folds of the wind for a haven and a refuge compassionate and warm to keep the woes of life at bay a sinbad am i the oceans are my thoughts the seas my feelings carrying me to you on the winds of passion across the vast expanses of the world i drift on the foam on the crest of every wave washed against the coastal cliffs the rocks of separation on which all my ships have foundered their sails utterly torn to shrouds for lost desires where are you amid the terrible storms pity me come forth make quiet approach carry your wind-blown sailor convey him safely ashore wash away his agony purge the wounds of one who at your feet bows down in meditative calm in sacred sanctuary Wondering by what incredible oversight 
I forgot to introduce our dear Sundaran, who is a great poetry reader for Temenos at all times, and tonight what a wonderful experience you gave us of poetry read as it should be by, you are more than an actor, Tom, we know you are also of, and indeed a poet yourself, and you've given us the great even improved my point. <laughs> it sounds much better now. I remember that T.S. Eliot said of Rob Slate, who also had a wonderful voice, and he was an actor and a poet reader, would say the same to you, Tom. Eliot said, uh, Robert could make a washing girl sound like a great poem. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, these were the great poems that you were reading and brought to it uh, a total relief also in, in what you were reading because I know that the, the spiritual uh, aspect of, of the poetry is, is very important too as a Christian or self-actor. And uh, I may say that Tom has recently been at Chichester playing the part of a cardinal in Hadrian uh, Sins. And uh, play, and we're very lucky to have you here at the end of it. So here, that was a wonderful. Thank you. And are you willing to take the questions? Perhaps how many? Shall we push the minute to it? If you wish. Um, I, whatever you wish, Gavin, yes? You don't mind? I have done four. Yes, well, the next thing is the See, I have my friends here. You see. <laughs> <laughs> I have very few friends. Yes, of course. Uh, I tried to put it into English myself. So practice. <laughs> I am very, of course, fortunate. Really, I owe uh, this country. A huge day. It was during the years that I was here and I sat at the feet of Catherine Ray and Francis was much younger than myself but much more greater in knowledge and understanding. I, I am a student too because I came at a late age to study for my doctorate here but I really owe this country a great debt. It is this literature that has made all the difference. Does. I I'm at home. Uh, I'm at home, really, because the culture I understand, although it's changing fast. But what Catherine, uh, Francis, and the Temenus people are trying to do is not to allow it to fade, so that it can never be retrieved. We're trying to get it back. Yes. 
I, unity in diversity. You see, I think that if you find, if you take the various religions of the world, right, you have one golden rule, which is the same in every one of them. Now, they're different. They're different forms. They have different symbols, imagery. But the underlying heart of every religion is one and the same. This is uh, the, the relationship between essence and form. The form is different. The essence is the same. Yes, I think we, we, we will never destroy the indigenous cultures. Why should we? But we will be able to speak in emotions, in feelings, in values that are universal, but which express themselves in different forms. And I don't think it's so, and it is a causal richness, I think, too. I, I believe in, in a world in which, uh, hopefully, all these... We will have a world, believe, it, believe me, you will, you will, perhaps you, I will see it, but you, some of you will see it, you're much younger here. There will be a world where you have nations without barriers. It's coming. All that is happening in the world today is merely, merely the breaking up of all barriers. And the whole fetish which is called sovereignty, it's perfection, it's over. These passports are going to be thrown into the sea, you see. There is no such thing anymore. You see, everything is going towards this all unity. We become human. I, I don't know, I, I I was, if I may, this is quite a funny story, but it wasn't funny when it happened. I was crossing the border from Canada to the United States in the early 60s, I think. And it was, I traveled by train because being a camel driver from the desert, you know, traveling by air at the time was a bit more difficult. I could cope with the train. The air was a bit too much. So I was crossing uh, and uh, the immigration form was bought and I was supposed to fill it. Name, age, etc., etc., race. I put human. <laughs> now the immigration officer came up to me and said, You can't do this. I said, What can't I do? He said, You are not human. <laughs> so I said, well, and I, I know I, I come from the Middle East, so I know you don't argue with a man in uniform and with a gun. <laughs> Ballad, uh, discretion is the better part of valor. I said, all right, what do you, what, what shall I do? He said, where were you born? I said, I was born in Nazareth. It was Palestine, Israel today. I live in Lebanon, I educated there. I mean, I'm in this, from this area. He said, you're an area? I said, if you say so. He said, well, genuine area? I said, if you say so. He said, you're a genuine, big wine area? I said, right, genuine, big wine area. This is how I interview <laughs> But I want to tell you this. I was never as insulted in my life as on that occasion. My birth, the place I was born, was a matter of accident. I didn't plan it. My humanity, no human being, no man should rob me of it. This is my belief. This is what we work, this is what poetry is, amateur is for us. Such a wonderful audience. Shall we let, release them? Release them.